Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, Part 2 of Big Two-Hearted River by Ernest Hemingway. I found an article written in December of 1990 for Michigan History, written by Jack Jobst, called Hemingway Insaney. I'll provide you with a few lines from it. I think you'll find it very helpful in understanding the story. Here's how it starts. The hot August sun hovered directly overhead as 20-year-old Ernest Miller Hemingway stepped carefully down from the train at Saney, Michigan. It was 1919. He walked slowly, favoring his right leg towards the small wooden depot on the south side of the tracks. While his leg hurt each time he put weight on it, he was proud of his wounds and he could handle it. After all, he was one of the first Americans wounded in Italy during the Great War, and he enjoyed talking about the Austrian mortar shell that had put him in a Milan, Italy hospital for several months. Still, the pride would come more easily if he was wearing his fancy Italian officer's uniform. He cringed as he recalled the brakeman's cruel remark, "'Hold her up!' the man yelled to the engineer. "'There's a cripple, and he needs time to get his stuff down.'" The trip from the Hemingway summer home on Walloon Lake had been long but enjoyable. From the moment they stepped aboard the Grand Rapids and Indiana Railroad, which was called the GRNI. In Petoskey, early that day, Hemingway and his two friends, who aren't mentioned in the story, Jack Pentecost, his high school classmate from Illinois, and Al Walker, had looked forward to visiting Saney. The excursion was to be the last great fishing trip of the summer. The short trip to Mackinac City had been enjoyable enough, but the boys watched with greater interest when they reached the Straits. Their train car was loaded onto the Chief Wawatam for the hour-long ferry ride across the Straits. The engine remained behind as the ferry took the train cars across the five miles to St. Ignace, where they hooked up to a Duluth, South Shore, and Atlantic engine for the remainder of the trip to Saney. The trip was nothing more than a fishing excursion for three young men, but the visit would also make Saney famous once again. From this experience, Ernest Hemingway wrote one of his most well-known short stories, Big Two-Hearted River. While the exploits of this tiny village disappeared into dusty history books, Hemingway's story continued in countless editions of the author's short stories, attracting visitors to the little town to ask about the famous author. The town of Saney first gained fame in the 1880s, when it was called as tough and two-fisted a town as any on earth. 
A major part of the population were poor lumberjacks, paid only a dollar seventy-five a day. When they had money in their pockets, they were anxious to spend it on anything to blot out their exhausting, dangerous, and frustratingly celibate life in bleak camps and lonely pine woods. They found what they wanted in Saney. One chronicler was probably correct when he wrote that no one else could truthfully see how any place in the pineries could have come closer to hell than Saney. The town at that time boasted a population of 3,000, mostly with full wallets and a strong thirst. To service these people, Saney offered ten hotels, a dozen saloons, several blind pigs, which were unlicensed bars, two large hoodlums, a local euphemism for bawdy houses, and numerous smaller ones, a Catholic church, a school, two large general merchandise stores, several drug stores, meat markets, and jewelry stores. Saney could have been a wild west town, with its collection of rare inhabitants with such colorful names as Teapot Kelly, Protestant Bob McGuire, and a man named Old Lightheart, who allegedly slept in two sugar barrels and subsisted on raw beef livers. As a legendary drinker and colorful personality, no one compares to P.K. Small, a lumberjack who, for a drink, bit the heads off small animals, such as snakes, toads, frogs, and even geese. He also ate live mice, chomping to the middle of the unfortunate animal, with the tail dangling from the side of the man's cheek. Leon Solgatz was a less colorful Saney area resident, but provided a greater influence on history. A loner, this one-time laborer on the Manistique Railroad became infamous when he traveled to Buffalo, New York in 1901 and fatally shot President William McKinley. Saney changed from a small group of outbuildings to a flourishing town, and the owner Grondin's fortunes grew along with him. He built his first hotel in 1884, then a retail store and bar, but it burned down in 1891. He rebuilt, and this also burned. At the turn of the century, the key word in effective firefighting was not extinguish, but contain. Everyone helped to ensure that the fire would not burn everything. Insurance rates, not surprisingly, were exorbitant. Forest fires were also common, especially after the pine ran out in the 1890s. Occasionally one reached Saney itself. Chroniclers differ on how often this occurred, but most agree that it was unusual, perhaps happening only once around the turn of the century. In this story, Big Two-Hearted River, Hemingway's narrator, Nick Adams, tells of a fire that destroyed the town, but this never happened. By 1919, the countless acres of pine were gone, and the town had shrunk to only a few buildings. Only one building was burned, although not because of a forest fire. Although not destroyed, historic Saney indeed disappeared but the railroad still brought travelers like Hemingway to town because it had found a new product to ship. When the lumber crews clear-cut the pine, they left behind slightly blemished trees and miles of coal wood, or the tops and branches of trees too misshapen or small for lumber. These burned readily, and when forest fires swept across the swampy land and sandy high ground, the resulting deep piles of ash became a perfect growing medium for bracken ferns and blueberries. After harvesting, the ferns were packed into 100-pound bales and shipped to flower shops and funeral parlors across the country. The Hemingway family had never visited Saney, but they had traveled to the Upper Peninsula. Although from Chicago, Ernest's father, a physician, and Uncle George occasionally journeyed north from their summer homes near Petoskey and fished Brevort Lake, northwest of St. Ignace. Ernest, like his father and uncle, loved fishing. Addie loved traveling to exotic places. Saney, with its rich, colorful history and promise of great fishing, provided the perfect vacation for Hemingway. 
In late August 1919, with the summer coming to a close, Hemingway invited some friends on the last great fishing trip of the summer. Not all his thoughts, however, were on fishing. If his youth was not over, it was certainly dwindling down to the final days, just like the summer itself. He was twenty and unemployed. Worse, he lived at home, and this was becoming intolerable. His parents, initially concerned with his leg wound, were now transferring that concern to his life as an adult. What did he want out of life? What could he do besides fish? As Hemingway watched the train pull away from the Saney station, moving west towards Marquette, the young man could look north across the tracks at the little village. He had been hoping that some of Saney's wildness remained, but he was greatly disappointed. There were no body houses, no Wild West-style saloons, only some abandoned frame buildings and grass growing on the back streets. While not quite a ghost town, Saney was nothing like its reputation. Nick does refer to the Mansion House Hotel, which some scholars believe was the Hotel White House, built and owned by the railroad company, the only hotel that did not serve alcohol. Hemingway may have heard of this hotel from friends or relatives, but he was looking at the foundation of the Grandin Hotel, which had burned down just the summer before. According to local lore, the fire began when a drunk was carried from the first-floor bar to the third floor to sleep off his inebriation, either in bed or in the ram pasture, a euphemism for the floor. One man apparently selected a bed and, if the stories are true, dozed off and set his mattress afire. Soon the wood-frame building was entirely ablaze, and saney entrepreneur Phil Grondon watched his last hotel burn to the ground. Nick Adams, the narrator of Big Two-Hearted River, walks west down the tracks toward the Fox River. The steel railroad bridge described in the story remains just as it was then. The walk is about 100 yards from where the depot once stood, on the south side of the tracks, just west of a pulp mill. The Fox River is narrow here and flows quickly southeast. During the days when pine was king, logs moved down this narrow channel to the mills in Manistique. After admiring the river and thinking what lay ahead on their fishing trip, Hemingway and his friends turned north from the bridge, probably figuring that fishing, and certainly camping, would be better outside of town. According to local lore, the boys followed the abandoned railroad tracks, a spur line running north alongside present-day M77, towards Grand Marais. The tracks had been taken up the year before, but the embankment and ties remained. The fox runs alongside until the edge of the town then veers to the west about a mile. At least the first day, Hemingway probably camped two miles above Saney, where the east branch of the Fox cuts across the railroad embankment. While the bridge is long gone, remnants of railroad ties remain in the high weeds. This river is probably what Hemingway referred to in his letter to a friend as the Little Fox. Local storytellers say that a large group of workers camped on the high ground there just above the river. They were berry pickers from Grand Marais, and they welcomed the young man and his friends, who set up their tent in the larger camp. While Nick Adams spent his saney trip alone, Hemingway was not a solitary person, preferring the company of others on his travels. The rest of the week was spent fishing north of Saney, occasionally in the swampy area between two fox rivers, and perhaps shooting at some deer that happened by. The boys stayed a week before returning to the lower peninsula. They never fished the Two-Hearted River, which was 45 miles northeast of Saney, as others have pointed out. Hemingway said he used the name for his story, not from ignorance nor carelessness, but because the name, Big Two-Hearted River, is poetry. The author never returned to the Upper Peninsula, but his memories of the journey in 1919 
made a lasting impression on him, spawning more than the single short story. And now part two of Big Two-Hearted River by Ernest Hemingway, right after these sponsor messages. And now our story. In the morning, the sun was up and the tent was starting to get hot. Nick crawled out under the mosquito netting stretched across the mouth of the tent to look at the morning. The grass was wet on his hands as he came out. He held his trousers and his shoes in his hands. The sun was just up over the hill. There was the meadow, the river, and the swamp. There were birch trees in the green of the swamp on the other side of the river. The river was clear and smoothly fast in the early morning. Down about 200 yards were three logs all the way across the stream. They made the water smooth and deep above them. As Nick watched, a mink crossed the river on the logs and went into the swamp. Nick was excited. He was excited by the early morning and the river. He was really too hurried to eat breakfast, but he knew he must. He built a little fire and put on the coffee pot. While the water was heating in the pot, he took an empty bottle and went down over the edge of the high ground to the meadow. The meadow was wet with dew, and Nick wanted to catch grasshoppers for bait before the sun dried the grass. He found plenty of good grasshoppers. They were at the base of the grass stems. Sometimes they clung to a grass stem. They were cold and wet with the dew, and could not jump until the sun warmed them. Nick picked them up, taking only the medium-sized brown ones, and put them into the bottle. He turned over a log, and just under the shelter of the edge were several hundred hoppers. It was a grasshopper lodging house. Nick put about fifty of the medium browns into the bottle. While he was picking up the hoppers, the others warmed in the sun and commenced to hop away. They flew when they hopped. At first they made one flight and stayed stiff when they landed, as though they were dead. Nick knew that by the time he was through with breakfast, they would be as lively as ever. Without dew in the grass, it would take him all day to catch a bottle full of good grasshoppers, and he would have to crush many of them, slamming at them with his hat. He washed his hands at the stream. He was excited to be near it. Then he walked up to the tent. The hoppers were already jumping stiffly in the grass. In the bottle, warmed by the sun, they were jumping in a mass. Nick put in a pine stick as a cork. It plugged the mouth of the bottle enough so the hoppers could not get out and left plenty of air passage. He had rolled the log back and knew he could get grasshoppers there every morning. Nick laid the bottle full of jumping grasshoppers against a pine trunk. Rapidly he mixed some buckwheat flour with water and stirred it smooth. One cup of flour, one cup of water. He put a handful of coffee in the pot and dipped a lump of grease out of a can and slid it sputtering across the hot skillet. On the smoking skillet he poured smoothly the buckwheat batter. It spread like lava, the grease spitting sharply. Around the edges the buckwheat cake began to firm, then brown, and then crisp. The surface was bubbling slowly to porousness. Nick pushed under the browned undersurface with a fresh pine chip. He shook the skillet sideways, and the cake was loose on the surface. "'I won't try and flop it,' he thought. He slid the chip of clean wood all the way under the cake and flopped it over onto its face. It sputtered in the pan. When it was cooked, Nick re-greased the skillet. He used all the batter. It made another big flapjack and one smaller one. Nick ate a big flapjack and a smaller one, covered with apple butter. He put apple butter on the third cake, folded it over twice, wrapped it in oiled paper, and put it in his shirt pocket. He put the apple butter jar back in the pack 
"'and cut bread for two sandwiches. "'In the pack he found a big onion. "'He sliced it in two "'and peeled the silky outer skin. "'Then he cut one half into slices "'and made onion sandwiches. "'He wrapped them in oiled paper "'and buttoned them in the other pocket "'of his khaki shirt. "'He turned the skillet upside down on the grill, "'drank the coffee, "'sweetened and yellow-brown "'with the condensed milk in it, "'and tidied up the camp. "'It was a nice little camp.' Nick took his fly rod out of the leather rod case, jointed it, and shoved the rod case back into the tent. He put on the reel and threaded the line through the guides. He had to hold it from hand to hand as he threaded it, or it would slip back to its own weight. It was a heavy, double-tapered fly line. Nick had paid eight dollars for it a long time ago. It was made heavy to lift back in the air and come forward flat and heavy and straight to make it possible to cast a fly which has no weight. "'Nick opened the aluminum leader box. "'The leaders were coiled between the damp flannel pads. "'Nick had wet the pads at the water cooler "'on the train up to St. Ignace. "'In the damp pads, the gut leaders had softened, "'and Nick unrolled one and tied it by a loop "'at the end of the heavy fly line. "'He fastened a hook on the end of the leader. "'It was a small hook, very thin and springy. "'Nick took it from his hook book, "'sitting with the rod across his lap. "'He tested the knot and the spring of the rod by pulling the line taut. It was a good feeling. He was careful not to let the hook bite into his finger. He started down to the stream, holding his rod. The bottle of grasshoppers hung from his neck by a thong tied in half hitches around the neck of the bottle. His landing net hung by a hook from his belt. Over his shoulder was a long flour sack tied at each corner into an ear. The cord went over his shoulder. The sack flapped against his legs. Nick felt awkward and professionally happy with all his equipment hanging from him. The grasshopper bottle swung against his chest. In his shirt, the breast pockets bulged against him with the lunch and his fly book. He stepped into the stream. It was a shock. His trousers clung tight to his legs. His shoes felt the gravel. The water was a rising cold shock. Rushing, the current sucked against his legs. Where he stepped in, the water was over his knees. "'He waded with the current. "'The gravel slid under his shoes. "'He looked down at the swirl of water below each leg "'and tipped up the bottle to get a grasshopper. "'The first grasshopper gave a jump in the neck of the bottle "'and went out into the water. "'He was sucked under in the whirl by Nick's right leg "'and came to the surface a little way downstream. "'He floated rapidly, kicking in a quick circle, "'breaking the smooth surface of the water. "'He disappeared. "'A trout had taken him. Another hopper poked his head out of the bottle. His antennae wavered. He was getting his front legs out of the bottle to jump. Nick took him by the head and held him while he threaded the slim hook under his chin, down through his thorax, and into the last segments of his abdomen. The grasshopper took hold of the hook with his front feet, spitting tobacco juice on it. Nick dropped him into the water. Holding the rod in his right hand, he let out line against the pull of the grasshopper in the current. He stripped off line from the reel with his left hand and let it run free. He could see the hopper in the little waves of the current. It went out of sight. There was a tug on the line. Nick pulled against the taut line. It was his first strike. Holding the now living rod across the current, he brought in the line with his left hand. The rod bent in jerks, the trout pumping against the current. Nick knew it was a small one. He lifted the rod straight up in the air. It bowed with the pole. He saw the trout in the water jerking with his head and body against the shifting tangent of the line in the stream. 
Nick took the line in his left hand and pulled the trout, thumping tiredly against the current, to the surface. His back was mottled the clear, water-over-gravel color, his side flashing in the sun. The rod under his right arm, Nick stooped, dipping his right hand into the current. He held the trout, never still, with his moist right hand, while he unhooked the barb from his mouth, then dropped him back into the stream. He hung unsteadily in the current, then settled to the bottom beside a stone. Nick reached down his hand to touch him, his arm to the elbow underwater. The trout was steady in the moving stream, resting on the gravel, beside a stone. As Nick's fingers touched him, touched his smooth, cool, underwater feeling, he was gone, gone in a shadow across the bottom of the stream. He's all right, Nick thought. He was only tired. He had wet his hand before he touched the trout, so he would not disturb the delicate mucus that covered him. If a trout was touched with a dry hand, a white fungus attacked the unprotected spot. Years before, when he had fished crowded streams, with fly fishermen ahead of him and behind him, Nick had again and again come on dead trout, furry with white fungus, drifted against a rock, or floating belly up in some pool. Nick did not like to fish with other men on the river. Unless they were of your party, they spoiled it. He wallowed down the stream, above his knees in the current, through the fifty yards of shallow water above the pile of logs that crossed the stream. He did not rebait his hook, and held it in his hand as he waited. He was certain he could catch small trout in the shallows, but he didn't want them. There would be no big trout in the shallows this time of day. Now the water deepened up his thighs sharply and coldly. Ahead was the smooth, dammed back flood of water above the logs. The water was smooth and dark. On the left, the lower edge of the meadow. On the right, the swamp. Nick leaned back against the current and took a hopper from the bottle. He threaded the hopper on the hook and spat on him for good luck. Then he pulled several yards of line from the reel and tossed the hopper out ahead onto the fast, dark water. It floated down towards the logs. Then the weight of the line pulled the bait under the surface. Nick held the rod in his right hand, letting the line run out through his fingers. There was a long tug. Nick struck, and the rod came alive and dangerous, bent double, the line tightening, coming out of water, tightening, all in a heavy, dangerous, steady pull. Nick felt the moment when the leader would break if the strain increased and let the line go. The reel ratcheted into a mechanical shriek as the line went out in a rush. Too fast. Nick could not check it, the line rushing out, the reel note rising as the line ran out. With the core of the reel showing, his heart feeling stopped with the excitement. Leaning back against the current that mounted icily his thighs, Nick thumbed the reel hard with his left hand. It was awkward getting his thumb inside the fly reel frame. As he put on pressure, the line tightened into sudden hardness, and beyond the logs, a huge trout went high out of the water. As he jumped, Nick lowered the tip of the rod, but he felt, as he dropped the tip to ease the strain, the moment when the strain was too great, the hardness too tight. Of course, the leader had broken. There was no mistaking the feeling when all sprang up the line, and it became dry and hard. Then it went slack. His mouth dry, his heart down, Nick reeled in. He had never seen so big a trout. There was a heaviness, a power not to be held, and then the bulk of him as he jumped. He looked as broad as a salmon. Nick's hand was shaky. He reeled in slowly. The thrill had been too much. He felt, vaguely, a little sick, as though it would be better to sit down. 
The leader had broken where the hook was tied to it. Nick took it in his hand. He thought of the trout somewhere on the bottom, holding himself steady over the gravel, far down below the light, under the logs, with the hook in his jaw. Nick knew the trout's teeth would cut through the snell of the hook. The hook would embed itself in his jaw. He'd bet that trout was angry. Anything that size would be angry. That was a trout. He had been solidly hooked, solid as a rock. He felt like a rock, too, before he started off. By God, he was a big one. Nick climbed out onto the meadow and stood, water running down his trousers and out of his shoes. His shoes squilchy. He went over and sat on the logs. He did not want to rush his sensations any. He wriggled his toes in the water, in his shoes, and got out a cigarette from his breast pocket. He lit it and tossed the match into the fast water below the logs. A tiny trout rose at the match as it swung around in the fast current. Nick laughed. He would finish the cigarette. He sat on the logs, smoking, drying in the sun, the sun warm on his back, the river shallow ahead entering the woods, curving into the woods. Shallows, light glittering, big water-smooth rocks, cedars along the bank and white birches, the logs warm in the sun, smooth to sit on, without bark, gray to the touch. Slowly the feeling of disappointment left him. It went away slowly, the feeling of disappointment that came sharply after the thrill that made his shoulders ache. It was all right now. His rod lying out on the logs, Nick tied a new hook on the leader, pulling the gut tight until it gripped onto itself in a hard knot. He baited up, then picked up the rod and walked to the far end of the logs to get into the water, where it was not too deep. Under and beyond the logs was a deep pool. Nick walked around the shallow shelf near the swamp shore till he came out on the shallow bed of the stream. On the left, where the meadow ended and the woods began, a great elm tree was uprooted. Gone over in a storm, it lay back into the woods, its roots clotted with dirt, grass growing in them, rising a solid bank beside the stream. The river cut to the edge of the uprooted tree. From where Nick stood he could see deep channels, like ruts, cut in the shallow bed of the stream by the flow of the current. Pebbly where he stood, and pebbly and full of boulders beyond, where it curved near the tree roots. The bed of the stream was marly, and between the ruts of deep water, green weed fronds swung in the current. Nick swung the rod back over his shoulder and forward, and the line, curving forward, laid the grasshopper down on one of the deep channels in the weeds. A trout struck, and Nick hooked him. Holding the rod far out toward the uprooted tree and sloshing backward in the current, Nick worked the trout, plunging, the rod bending alive, out of the danger of the weeds into the open river. Holding the rod, pumping alive against the current, Nick brought the trout in. He rushed, but always came, the spring of the rod yielding to the rushes, sometimes jerking under water, but always bringing him in. Nick eased downstream with the rushes. The rod above his head, he led the trout over the net, then lifted. The trout hung heavy in the net, mottled the trout back and silver sides in the meshes. Nick unhooked him, heavy sides, good to hold, big undershot jaw, and slipped him heaving and big sliding into the long sack that hung from his shoulders in the water. Nick spread the mouth of the sack against the current, and it filled, heavy with water. He held it up, the bottom in the stream, and the water poured out through the sides. 
Inside at the bottom was the big trout, alive in the water. Nick moved downstream. The sack out ahead of him sunk, heavy in the water, pulling from his shoulders. It was getting hot, the sun hot on the back of his neck. Nick had one good trout. He did not care about getting many trout. Now the stream was shallow and wide. There were trees along both banks. The trees at the left bank made short shadows on the current in the forenoon sun. Nick knew there were trout in each shadow. In the afternoon, after the sun had crossed toward the hills, the trout would be in the cool shadows on the other side of the stream. The very biggest ones would lie up close to the bank. You could always pick them up there, on the black. When the sun was down, they all moved out into the current. Just when the sun made the water blinding in the glare before it went down, you were liable to strike a big trout anywhere in the current. It was almost impossible to fish then. The surface of the water was blinding as a mirror in the sun. Of course, you could fish upstream, but in a stream like the black, or this, you had to wallow against the current, and then a deep place. The water piled up on you. It was no fun to fish upstream with this much current. Nick moved along through the shadow stretch, watching the banks for deep holes. A beech tree grew close beside the river, so that the branches hung down into the water. The stream went back in under the leaves. There were always trout in a place like that. Nick did not care about fishing that hole. He was sure he would get hooked in the branches. It looked deep, though. He dropped the grasshopper so the current took it underwater, back in under the overhanging branch. The line pulled hard, and Nick struck. The trout threshed heavily, half out of the water in the leaves and branches. The line was caught, and Nick pulled hard, and the trout was off. He reeled in, and holding the hook in his hand, walked down the stream. Ahead, close to the left bank, was a big log. Nick saw it was hollow. Pointing up river, the current entered it smoothly. Only a little ripple spread each side of the log. The water was deepening. The top of the hollow log was gray and dry. It was partly in the shadow. Nick took the cork out of the grasshopper bottle and a hopper clung to it. He picked him off, hooked him, and tossed him out. He held the rod far out so that the hopper on the water moved into the current flowing into the hollow log. Nick lowered the rod and the hopper floated in. There was a heavy strike. Nick swung the rod against the pole. It felt as though he were hooked into the log itself except for the live feeling. He tried to force the fish out into the current, and it came, heavily. The line went slack, and Nick thought the trout was gone. Then he saw him, very near, in the current, shaking his head, trying to get the hook out. His mouth was clamped shut. He was fighting the hook in the clear flowing current. Looping in the line with his left hand, Nick swung the rod to make the line taut, and tried to lead the trout toward the net, but he was gone, out of sight, the line pumping. Nick fought him against the current, letting him thump in the water against the spring of the rod. He shifted the rod to his left hand, worked the trout upstream, holding his weight, fighting on the rod, and then let him down into the net. He lifted him clear of the water, a heavy half-circle in the net, the net dripping, unhooked him, and slid him into the sack. He spread the mouth of the sack and looked down at the two big trout alive in the water. Through the deepening water, Nick waded over to the hollow log. He took the sack off, over his head, the trout flopping as it came out of the water, and hung it so the trout were deep in the water. Then he pulled himself up on the log and sat, 
the water from his trousers and boots running down into the stream. He laid his rod down, moved along to the shady end of the log, and took the sandwiches out of his pocket. He dipped the sandwiches in the cold water. The current carried away the crumbs. He ate the sandwiches and dipped his hat full of water to drink, the water running out through his hat just ahead of his drinking. It was cool in the shade, sitting on the log. He took a cigarette out and struck a match to light it. The match sunk into the gray wood, making a tiny furrow. Nick leaned over the side of the log, found a hard place, and lit the match. He sat smoking and watching the river. Ahead the river narrowed and went into a swamp. The river became smooth and deep, and the swamp looked solid with cedar trees, their trunks close together, their branches solid. It would not be possible to walk through a swamp like that. The branches grew so low. You would have to keep almost level with the ground to move at all. You could not crash through the branches. That must be why the animals that lived in swamps were built the way they were, Nick thought. He wished he had brought something to read. He felt like reading. He did not feel like going on into the swamp. He looked down the river. A big cedar slanted all the way across the stream. Beyond that, the river went into the swamp. Nick did not want to go in there now. He felt a reaction against deep wading with the water deepening up under his armpits to hook big trout in places impossible to land them. In the swamp, the banks were bare. The big cedars came together overhead. The sun did not come through, except in patches. In the fast, deep water, in the half-light, the fishing would be tragic. In the swamp, fishing was a tragic adventure. Nick did not want it. He did not want to go down the stream any further today. He took out his knife, opened it, and stuck it in the log. Then he pulled up the sack, reached into it, and brought out one of the trout. Holding him near the tail, hard to hold, alive in his hand, he whacked him against the log. The trout quivered, rigid. Nick laid him on the log in the shade and broke the neck of the other fish the same way. He laid them side by side on the log. Nick cleaned them, slitting them from the vent to the tip of the jaw. All the insides and the gills and tongue came out in one piece. They were both males, long gray-white strips of milt, smooth and clean. All the insides clean and compact, coming out altogether. Nick tossed the offal ashore for the minks to find. He washed the trout in the stream. When he held them back up in the water, they looked like live fish. Their color was not gone yet. He washed his hands and dried them on the log. Then he laid the trout on the sack spread out on the log, rolled them up in it, tied the bundle, and put it in the landing net. His knife was still standing, blade stuck in the log. He cleaned it on the wood and put it in his pocket. Nick stood up on the log, holding his rod, the landing net hanging heavy, then stepped into the water and splashed ashore. He climbed the bank and cut up into the woods, toward the high ground. He was going back to camp. He looked back. The river just showed through the trees. There were plenty of days coming when he could fish the swamp. Thanks for joining us for Part 2 of Big Two-Hearted River by Ernest Hemingway. We always appreciate reviews, and we have a few recent ones for you. The first one, five stars. Simply great. Recently stumbled into this podcast, now burning through multiple episodes a day. It enriches my life. Especially enjoy Jack London's stories, though looking forward to exploring other authors via show. Very grateful to cast, host, creator. Wish I could afford to support financially. 
but I know this review will help and gratify Mr. Hagedorn. Thank you. That one from Preppy Nell, Apple Podcast, U.S. And thank you, Preppy Nell. It does gratify me greatly. We appreciate you sending the review very, very much. And this one, great stories, five stars. I came for the G.K. Chesterton and will stay for the other classics that are so pleasantly familiar, whether I've heard them or not. That one from Working Hard to Be This Poor, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, fantastic, five stars. John Hagedorn's material never fails to please. This podcast, as well as his many other shows, have given me many hours of entertainment. John's voice is perfect. It's like he's sitting at my kitchen table. Very engaging. That one from Amos412, Apple Podcast, U.S. Amos, will you pass the maple syrup, please? And this one, easy listening, five stars. As a traveling salesman, I'm always trying to find something easy to listen to while driving. So this has been a great addition to my audio library for the road. Down from Tim Newcomer, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, well done and relaxing, five stars. A really well done podcast. John has become a wonderful companion during my workday. All the 1001 podcasts are brilliant. Check them out. Down from Major Larry, Apple Podcast, Great Britain. Thank you all so very, very much for taking the time to leave these reviews. As you already know, they are greatly, greatly appreciated. By the way, Jack London coming next Sunday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.